Hey, it's Ed. I've got a brand new podcast supporter I want to thank. Kent Reeves. Kent signed up to support the podcast, and I really, really, really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the options, go to mountainandpray.com slash support. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Hal Herring. Hal is an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in such notable publications as The Atlantic, The Economist, and Orion. He's also a contributing editor at Field and Stream and a regular contributor to High Country News. Most recently, Hal has made a name for himself in the podcast world as the host of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers popular podcast called Podcast and Blast with Hal Herring. If there's one common thread that runs through Hal's prolific and wide-ranging career— It's a love of the West, its people, and its public lands. I've long admired Hal, and specifically his refusal to be boxed in by any particular political party or closed-minded ideologies. He could be considered progressive on some issues and conservative on others, but his opinions are always the result of a lot of deep thinking, extensive research, and thorough consideration. And as you'll hear him say in this interview, he's endlessly curious and always open to having his mind changed two characteristics that I personally admire and try my best to emulate, especially when it comes to issues here in the American West. Hal and I covered a lot in a little over an hour, and regular listeners will enjoy his depth and breadth of knowledge, as well as his unbridled passion for the American West. We start by talking about his upbringing in Alabama and why he decided to move west. We talk a lot about books and how offers up a massive selection of titles that have influenced his work and most of which have never before been mentioned on this podcast. We talk about the importance of journalism at this specific moment in history and how he goes about finding the facts in today's overwhelming deluge of media. We also talk about his work ethic, his family, his current home in Augusta, Montana, his climbing and mountaineering adventures, and his recent success in the world of podcasts. There's a lot to learn and digest in this episode, so be sure to check out the episode notes for links to everything we discuss. Also, I hope you enjoy these Southern accents, because I think Hal really brought mine out in full force. So enjoy this conversation with Hal Herring. Like me, you're not from here. Wait, New Jersey? Is that where you're from? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I started out in, in uh, uh, Red Hook. Um, <laughs> no, I, I grew up outside of Huntsville, Alabama. Um, in a place they call Sharps Cove. Yep. Um, it's now mostly called Gurley, Alabama. Okay. Huntsville's kind of eating parts of it. Um, but, uh, I was, uh, God, I, I went to Alabama, University of Alabama. I went to Tulane University where I met my wife. I traveled a whole lot for a long time, but I, most what, what formed that was, uh, when I was young, I went to work. This is what when I was, uh, you know, I was nineteen or something. I went to work as a tree planter, a hoedad tree planter, okay, on a contract crew for Warehouser, and um, that really changed a lot because <clears throat> there was a lot of tree planting out west, and uh, I learned how to do that. Yep. 
and um, eventually that would lead me to like Montana, mm-hmm. Idaho, eastern, uh, western, eastern Washington, um, and so that was kind of my springboard. Yep. And um, I came up to Montana in 1988. What part? I went to Yellow Bay on Flathead Lake oh, to nice. uh, go to a writer's workshop with Tom McGuane. Oh, wow. And That's uh, an intro to Montana. It was, oh, and it was on fire, right? This is the 88 yeah, fires. Yeah. And um, when I came home from that, it was an incredible experience. And I uh, I rode the train from Mississippi and uh, from, from Memphis to Chicago, Chicago to Whitefish. And then I got off and owned the train. There was a tree planter. Mm-hmm. And I learned later that if you recruit tree planters, you get a, a bonus at the end of the year. So he let me stay at his house, and we partied it up in Whitefish, and we went all over. This is back when you could still be a tree planter and have a place in White, yeah, downtown yeah, Whitefish. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so that was my introduction. And I, when I went back to Alabama, um, I didn't leave immediately, but I realized that the 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 way the way was in the west like that that i could go there as a tree planter a forestry contractor mm-hmm. um i could do all these things and and keep myself afloat mm-hmm. um while i figured out whether that was a good place or not my, my wife and i both came we weren't married then but uh we both drove out there to montana and just looked around and found i've eventually got our job caretaking a small ranch okay so you said you came back so you did that job and you came back yeah well when you got back, did you kind of start going crazy? Like I got to get back out I, there. I or, did or? in a way. In my intellectually, I did. I was. I knew I wanted to be uh, in the Rockies, you know. But um, I, I had never. People ask me stuff about that, and I, I, I love. I just Alabama has still. I never left there because I didn't like it. Sure, that's how it, I was in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Same thing. I, mean, I mean, it's it awesome, is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that would be a, a big pro, a big mistake. I would hate if anybody ever thought that because. The fishing and uh, and the hunting that I actually did there, um, and continue to do some, it, I, I love it. I mean, the landscape there is still part of my soul. Oh yeah, it's yeah. in the DNA. Yep. Um, you know, one of the things I've admired about you from afar is that you you've always got a lot of different things going on. I mean, obviously, writing is a big part, and seems like it's a common thread. Yeah. But then you balance that kind of intellectual side out with just hardcore work. I mean, out physical work. And so you mentioned you came out for a writer's workshop in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, has writing always been big? It has. It's always been ever for all my life. I mean, I, I probably wrote when I was 14. I mean, I wrote a Western. Did you I really? Somebody, yeah, there is, I had to imagine the landscape because I'd never been west. Really? Um, and uh, it was about, uh, you know, a renegade type. There was a lot of long-range shooting. Was your was your <laughs> were your folks writers or where did that come no, from? No, but they were readers okay. to the max, and um, that we we have so many books that my parents are both dead, but uh, like we still trying to figure out parts of the library really? at, at my at the house I grew up in, uh-huh. yeah. Um, and my mother was very interested in me being a writer. She always said writers didn't have to get up early. <laughs> and that's not true. <laughs> no, but <laughs> and so you had this kind of obsession with reading and writing. But did you study it in school? I mean, was it? I did. It, okay. um, I, I took a Latin American studies degree because at that time, um, that's what that's where the action was, right? The, the Sandinista Revolution uh-huh. had just happened. El Salvador was up in flames. Yep. Um, and I wanted to be a war correspondent. And so, uh, or something, you know, I traveled and I was in Trinidad. I went to Brazil as soon as I was old enough to leave home. Um, what were you doing there? 
I I was on the Amazon. Really? Um, yeah, and I my mother was so upset at my uh, plans. I had bought a ticket to Suriname. Like I'm trying to be a writer. Yeah, and now at the time I, w- I was wanting to be an adventurer okay. as well. And uh, and I was I think I was 18, but she was so upset with my uh, plan. Mm-hmm. I had bought this ticket to Suriname and uh, owned a Beiling which is in Brazil and the, the the mouth of the Amazon. And um, she found me a distant relative, and I'm still much in debt to these folks, David Russell. Um, and they were from Selma and Red Bay, Alabama. Okay. And he was he was managing kind of some uh, a timber operation down there. Okay. And it was a very kind of non – it was the kind of timber operation that, that we had been interested in Alabama where it was selective cuts. It was, it was, very, it was very non-destructive. Yeah. And um, I, they got me a job at the mill in Abatatuba, wow. which is across from Beiling. And uh, that was really great because I did have a destination. Mm-hmm. And when you're 18 and you don't have a destination, you don't speak Brazilian, sure. Portuguese. Um, it, it was really good. And I got to get on boats with them. And we did a lot. We had a lot of adventures. I, I had a lot of adventures. I, I worked with at the mill. And then we got on the boats and picked up logs. And, and- so you mentioned you hadn't been west, you know, as a fourteen-year-old. I mean, did y'all travel? As, not really. So where did this come from? I mean, where did um, it, where did this kind of adventure? Not just. I think everybody has the. Everybody idea, has I want to go out and do it. But yeah. A lot of people don't do it. I yeah. wouldn't have done it at eighteen. Yeah. And I consider myself kind of out there. I read Peter Mathieson's book at Play in the Fields of the Lord. Really? And it was His a book name keeps coming up. It was a podcast. book club special. It was a paperback book, and it was in my parents' room, and. Uh, <clears throat> I just thought that's where I'm headed. Really? Yeah, it's set in the Peruvian Amazon. And so you just did it. I just did it. But I mean, there was like you know, there's there's <laughs> there's like uh, Indians and indigenous tribes fighting. Um, I mean, it's an incredible book. This this might be a crazy question. It seemed like a weird question, but did you get in much trouble when you were a teenager? Yes. <laughs> See, that's yeah. the difference. Yeah. See, I didn't. Yeah. And I was a rule follower. Yep. And that's why it took me till age whatever, yep. almost 30, yeah. to start realizing, hey, you don't need to follow these silly rules. Yeah. There was lots of trouble. Really? And, um, yeah. And there was nobody that was sorry <clears throat> even. I mean, my parents were good to me, but there was nobody that was sorry to see me go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in Brazil and then back to Alabama for yeah, school. Yeah, for school. And and. How far after school did you officially move out this way? Um, well, I came up to Yellow Bay Writers Workshop when yep. I was 23. Okay. And then um, with the following year, so I think I was 25 when I got that job um, managing the ranch in the Bitterroot. Okay. And then you've been there ever since. Been, and, in, been in, the in Montana, yeah. And I mean, as a as a forestry contractor, and I, when I say contractor, I don't mean I filled out a lot of paperwork and stuff like that and bid on a lot of federal jobs because I did not. Mm-hmm. What I did was somebody got a contract and they called me and I went and was the sawyer or the tree planter or the trail guy. Yep. yep. Uh, I don't I'm, when you say I'm a forestry contractor, I'm a subcontractor to people who have more patience for bids and and more no they know more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> when did when did your you decide? All right, I I can make some money on this writing thing. I mean, when did that come into play? Because um, you've got you got such a history with so many of the magazines that I consider like the real deal. I did. I got I got lucky. Um, but people always say that. Yeah, that's true. And luck favors the prepared yeah. mind. <laughs> um, so I had gone to. Uh, I'm trying to, when I was working at the ranch, I published a couple of essays. 
and I won a short story contest that was judged by Peter Mathieson and got $500. Nice. And we were very, very out of money at that point. And I was like, holy smokes. That was 19, early 1990s or something. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that's money. Um, my, my, my salary there was a little bit of between $800 a month and a little bit more, but it was, it was house provided, Mm -hmm. a truck, a phone. I had to pay the long distance, but, um, which is the days. Yeah. yeah, And it was, it was crushing (laughs) because I like to talk to people. Um, but, uh, I remember that was where I first started thinking, you know, they could pull this off, but it was all, that was all in fiction. Was it really? That, that was yeah. one question I was going to ask: yeah. is how much has fiction played a, role? a lot? Okay. And that's where I started out. Um, and so I, I, uh, I got into Warren Wilson College. Yeah. Um, on the strength of that short of the short stories and essays that I'd done. Okay. And I actually finished that that degree in creative writing. Okay, got it. Um, and it was a good experience. I didn't finish the novel that I started there. I didn't. There was a lot of things. There were a lot of a lot of like things that. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about them, but I, I set out to be a fiction writer, and I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was uh, I was carrying student loan debt, and there was the back to work in the woods when mm-hmm. I left the ranch. Yeah, And it was, you know, it's pretty easy for me personally to go be a tree planter. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, I'm aged out of some of it now. Sure. But um, some of that woods work got better and better. I got hung up in thin and timber for a long time until that just completely crashed around me. Um, it only took about three seasons. But I see I segued, if you could use a writer term, from that to trails. And trails that was Davis Bacon wages. So everybody everybody hates the federal government. I federal government never done nothing. Federal government, if they managed the sands in the Sahara, it would <laughs> they wouldn't be sand, right? Uh-huh. I mean I hear this all the time. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know what? I don't think you have any idea what the federal government even does. I mean, I was I thought I hated the federal government too. Everybody told me that I mean, time. then I got Davis Bacon wages. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden I bought a pickup truck. From a guy down the road from me, he really needed to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. And and I was on cruise where these Davis Bacon wages circulated through mm-hmm. my community, and and that was a wonderful thing. You you swing in a pick, you're building trail on the national forest mm-hmm. with good people. I would good imagine. people. Yeah. Some were good, some were bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Characters. we cy- we cycled some in and out of the jailhouse. Yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, hell yeah, and it was a tremendous adventure of living outside. And then you got these these pretty big paychecks compared to what was being paid at at stock and shelves at the at the super one or whatever. When you when you think about you, you mentioned the the student loans and how yeah. you know if, if you maybe if you hadn't had those you would have tried fiction. But I've noticed in all the people I talked to that a lot of them in the creative world they have constraints of some sort, and so you weren't able to do that because of financial reasons, and so it forced you to go focus in more on the journalism side i mean do you think that was an advantage in the end having those those kind of walls up around you or do you i think- don't think things can be different than they are no, that's a good way to look at it um my my great friend alan jones he's novelist uh publisher freaking master of the literary scene arts or whatever mm-hmm. alan told me that the untold story of american fiction is some family money yeah <laughs> I think that, and, that makes sense. Yeah, and it makes sense. I don't know if you ever read Mark Richard no, back in the day. Um, he wrote an, a, an extraordinary novel called Fish Boy. Mm-hmm. 
and he wrote a, a collection. This is so far back. No, uh, called it. the Ice at the at the Bottom of the World. And um, Mark Richard was literally one of the greatest short story prose stylists to me ever. You know, and he just disappeared into television. Interesting. And he's still one of the great prose writers, but he couldn't sustain that. Yeah, I don't know how. Lot, you know that art. I've I've been in contact with a few fiction writers, and I got a, a good one coming up in the next few weeks. I'll I'll tell you afterwards because if, if it falls okay. apart, I don't want to. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> but um, but it it just seems like it's all hard as hell. But but the fiction world. It, it, I don't know. I just well, it's it's the it's a tremendous gamble, and it's um it's for people. And my my journalism turned into this. This is for people who are otherwise unemployable in many ways, <laughs> um, unless you go to um. Holy smokes! I'm gonna I just have to Google it. But um, the guy who wrote the 25th Hour and ended up writing the Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. David. Um, and. I'll put. I'll, I'll yeah. figure it out and put a note to it, a link to it. Okay, um, but I mean, he he took off like a rocket mm-hmm. into that. And and if you read um, the book he wrote about the siege of Stalingrad, it's a novel. Um, you see that he was he was he already had it. Yeah. The 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 entry to that novel um, is so extraordinary, where these guys are walking through Stalingrad, and during the height of the siege. Mm-hmm. And they get captured by these soldiers who take them to a commander who gives them a request in exchange for their lives. Wow. And you go like, wow. You know, now, if you can do that, that's different. But I, I know fiction writers who do beautiful, deep work who have to teach, sure. for instance. It seems like that's a common theme. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's a theme with a lot of writers. Right. You know I mean, and, and in some ways, I think it makes the work more real. It can, you know? for sure. I mean, I've, like with all your work with public lands— I mean, I think your voice is. I mean, it'd be authentic no matter what. But the fact that you're out doing all this other stuff, well, I have I mean, a different. I have a different take on it. Do you I, really? I, I do. I mean, I just. I've been a con a, a worker, mm-hmm. subcontractor worker on public lands for about 27 years. Sure. And trails was an enormous like experience for me, but in 2009. Well, when I was 37, and this is before 2009, a really good friend of mine who's much younger than I am started getting into this tree work where you harvest uh, ponderosa pine, dug fir, and then that was a big deal. And I I was a rock climber and a mountaineer, so it was super easy for me to to move into tree climbing. Mm -hmm. And I found I just loved it. Um, and around 2009, here's another thing about federal government, right? The, The U.S. Forest Service with the a, a genius named Mary Frances Mihailovich who inherited the job, they began to work on white bark pine, which was rapidly becoming extinct due to blister rust, which which kills all the, the five needle pines. Yep. And we, we probably won't go into all this, but the white bark is a keystone species of the altitude of the Rockies. Yep. It, it's grizzly bears are dependent on it. Uh, Clark's nutcrackers dependent on it. The snowpack is dependent on it. I mean, and it, it is just like withering away. Yeah. And um, he, he got into this these contracts of climbing white bark pines, caging the cones so that the the not Clark's nutcracker can't get them, or the squirrels. Everything wants them yeah. because the seed is like a piece of lard. Mm-hmm. And uh, they then these were supposed to be the blister rust resistant white bark pines got it and they were doing this incredible thing where they were planting the seeds getting the 
the seedling started and then we would cut this stuff called scion which is the new growth on these 80 to 250 to 500 year old trees and they would graft that on there and they could produce pine cones wow. and seeds that may be blister rust resistant very cool and this was one of the best jobs i ever had in my life oh yeah and um i just sort of aged out of it i decided i decided a couple of years ago that uh i needed to move on from it mm-hmm. um it's just like you stay out for months and um you you yo-yo back and forth across the west climbing these white barks sure and it's it's really neat though <laughs> yeah it sounds I mean, yeah. that sounds super cool and when was there a specific point when you were like, all right, I, I want to focus my energy on telling the stories of these public lands? I mean, when did that come in? Because I feel like that, at least in the last I'm, few years, as they've become more under threat, for you've sure. become one of the leading, the leading voice, I would say. It's because I know what's there. Mm-hmm. And I have an obligation to, to relate that to people, who, especially people I grew up with who say, well, that's a national park. And I said, no, that's a national forest. Yeah. And they go, why will they even, and I go, well, I'm going to hunt the Missouri breaks this year. I'm really excited. And they said, will they even let you hunt there? Really? They just don't, oh, man. the concept, and, they and just don't even get it. Yes. And I just, um, we could talk about this later, but my, my daughter was talking about something. She had been on this semester abroad in Africa, which she got a scholarship for, and she she said, well, they, no, they asked me if I eat bugs and stuff. And I said, you cannot hold it against people who don't know something. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Me and you don't know stuff. We have assumptions. We have, we have, we, you don't ever hold it against somebody who doesn't know something. Yep. And so my obligation with the public lands thing was to just simply bring what you got. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I feel like you're, there aren't many journalists out there who have your background, you know, of being out there that deep for, for, for year after year. I mean, you know, not many people would want it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you thinking about, you know, how the, the media landscape has changed, just even, you know, since you've been doing it, yeah. can you talk a little bit about the need for real journalism and real journalists who know what they're doing versus what I'm doing with you right now? I mean, this is fun and sure. everything, but I, I, you know, I'm not trained. We're sitting here shooting the shit. Right. And so talk about the need for real journalism. Well, some of the, some great journalists I know are not particularly trained. Um, they were storytellers and then they learned the rules and ethics mm-hmm. and they're, and they're, uh, I don't know any of them who are great, who are not extraordinarily ethical. Really? Yeah. At least in, at least in the printed, the sure. final, the final product. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that okay so here's here's what i think i got on that is i figured when i I did a story on game farming that coincided with the rise of chronic the awareness of chronic wasting disease and of the velvet antler trade and all of this stuff just an enormous amount of synchronicity and i I just i don't like that word but the enormous amount of of things coming together and i was thrown into this kind of fire with that which was wonderful mm-hmm. and um what i realized was there were people who are interested in the ethical questions about more of uh, uh trophy hunting inside a fence it's not hunting it's just shooting you buy this animal and you shoot it inside a fence there were a lot of people interested in that but i had because i was getting paid 750 bucks um i could spend t- two weeks talking to 
10 different people on either side of this and write something that would then give this person who was probably running a roofing crew Mm -hmm. but was interested a a chance to decide what they thought. And I wasn't going to decide for them, but they – they got they're putting a roof on the house, mm-hmm. which is really important. Definitely. There's a guy selling insurance. There's a dude selling houses. And there's a guy buying houses and he's fixing the plumbing. Mm-hmm. And these people are all got their jobs and I got mine. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that mine is much more rewarding than that, but only for me. Exactly. You know? We were talking about like what what other people is it different? My take on it, it might be, but my but everybody's got what fulfills them in some way. Mm-hmm. And one thing in journalism is this ain't the money. Yeah, yeah. It has to be the story or the or the adventure or the um, the insatiable need to know. You know. Well, and so you're so deep in this, and. I mean, I we follow each other on or connected on social media on Facebook, sure. and you're always posting all these interesting articles. But in this era where every nobody believes the news, people want to say fake news. And where do you get your info? I mean, where like do you have a certain kind of menu of of places you trust, or I mean, how do you sort through to find what the real story is and not just some inflammatory nonsense? <laughs> Well, I think I have what Hemingway said was a high-quality bullshit detector. Uh-huh. Um, but the answer to that is you kind of assume, like I, 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 I subscribe to the New York Times online, mm-hmm. but that's nothing like buying the New York Times at the airport and reading it on the plane. I agree. And so you know that. You're not getting all the stories. You're not getting the context. And um, even when I'm reading the, the New York Times, I understand that that somebody wrote this, and they're kind of like me. They're going to be missing something, sure. And so, or they're going to be coming from assumptions, and that's happening so much. Um, and maybe I'm just more aware of it. But from Eastern-based journalism on Western issues, there are so many assumptions that just ain't true. Interesting. Um, so you're coming from a position of like what Tom Waits said. You know, he started out with bad directions. <laughs> You know, <laughs> um, but I think you just you take it all with the understanding that this is this person. This person had way more time on this than you'll ever have. Mm-hmm. They have a valid amount of information they're giving you. They worked hard on this. They're in good faith, mostly. Yeah. And that person deserves to be read with with you with an open heart while keeping the BS detector on for their assumptions or things that they may not know. Sure. I think I think we've lost an idea here that um, most of us operate in good faith. Mm-hmm. You know, not at the Drudge Report and not at some left-wing lunacy site or whatever, you know. Yeah. But the, the, we're in a, like, I, you know, I wrote that book on guns in 2008. Yep. And a lot of that was, I, I've always been very fascinated by the missouri border wars i think that was like a epic low point Mm -hmm. in our history yep you know and um and not that it wasn't an adventure for the wildwood boys if you ever read james carlos blake's i haven't read that holy smokes (laughs) what's the name of it the wildwood Wildwood boys Boys. yeah um and him and uh ang lee made that movie um out of a Daniel Woodrell book called Woe to Live On. Okay. He made a movie called Ride with the Devil. Oh, yeah. And Jewel is in it. Oh, yeah. The singer. Uh-huh. Um, those two pieces on the Missouri border, border Wars are just like 
that you know it was a rough time sure but i got a lot out of that study of history and one of the things you can go back to is the abolitionists had their newspapers and the freaking pro-slavery people had their newspapers and they were willing to kill everybody over how good kansas went wow pro-slavery or anti and they eventually did right they massacred everybody in lawrence kansas but there's a newspaper there called the Squatter Sovereign from Atchison, Kansas. And you could take, and I'm going to single out Fox News here. It's not that it it's doesn't have its counterparts on the left. Yes. But the Squatter Sovereign and Fox News, are we've, are, we've seen this all before. Does that make you feel better or worse? Better. Good. Me yep. too. That's why I was talking with our mutual friend Mark Kenyon about that. Yep. And I think understanding history in depth, I think it— it makes me feel better sure. overall that we this has all happened before. Yep. Um, another thing I admire about you from a distance, I've admired from afar, is that you can't box you in. You you're not taking your orders from a political party, from some ideology. Ideology, it's the how hearing ideology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you know when you're, I feel like, and I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you probably have some. You know, when you look on the the, the scheme of views as as the american people want to lay them out you got some stuff that's probably conservative some stuff that's probably considered progressive um you know when you're talking about this specifically this public land issue and you're talking with somebody who may be on the side of states taking hold of these sure. public lands how do you have those conversations i mean how do you, what what are those people thinking because i don't get they, it they have okay so um the public lands issue the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, all of these things, being an environmental journalist and being immersed in how we got that um, makes me a more uh, – I, I, I started out as an anarchist, mm-hmm. and I read the anarchist theory. I read Ed Abbey, Kropotkin. You know, um, I still believe in, in that in some part of my soul. Really? Well, I mean, in an anarchist society, you couldn't build it. Nobody would have the money to buy a neutron bomb. Yeah. Right? You couldn't, you you can't field vast armies to destroy like millions of people on either side. Mm -hmm. That's all about statism, you know, government and stuff. So I've embraced that through my youth. But the fact was, is there would be no public lands without a federal government. There would have been no recovery from the depression without a federal government. And I started, I'm just now reading the Federalist Papers and doing all this research. But the thing about it is, is the states, Bernard DeVoto wrote in 1959, that there will always be pressure for the lands, the federally managed public lands, to be devolved to the states, which can be coerced in a way that the federal government usually cannot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and the crude way to put this, and I do not believe that politicians are, are inherently crooked or anything like that, but the crude way to put this is that it costs less to buy a legislature, Lator, than it does a congressman. Interesting. And the, the history of this transfer is Nevada. My Lord, would you just Google up. The, what happened in Nevada when they began selling off their state lands and the vast level of crookedness, filth, really, that it in, in, was there. And a, and a buddy of mine who leans towards this state thing, he told me, yeah, 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 yeah. But Arizona learned a lesson there, and they appointed a board to oversee all that. And it's true, they did. Sure. 
Right? Yeah. And so, so, but corruption did not end when they apported that board. And when Ken Ivory of the American Lands Council says to you that this is like having your finger, your hand on the lever of a new Louisiana purchase, meaning the privatization of our American public lands, you know there's a problem. So are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic? Because I feel like this thing is, and you know, my business is private lands, but obviously doing what I do, living here, talking to people I talk to, I've, I've got a decent understanding. But I feel like, you know, it's flared up since the new president took over. How do you, I mean, do you feel it, like we're, we're on the right direction? I mean, do you feel like the, the I, resistance I, is holding up? In the short term, yeah. Um, what we're doing, though, this started, this started a long time ago. Um, it started as soon as, as Garfield and McKinley ratified like the, the idea of a federal forest reserve, mm-hmm. which they did for watershed protection because we were afraid we were going to run out of timber because we were treating it so damn bad. Yeah. Um, and our successes with this public lands estate are so extraordinary. And only thing that has ever hits any ink are the complete disasters like oh they've logged it all off oh they grazed it all off oh um federal management is in stasis analysis paralysis some of this is all true right yeah yeah but like they they this the successes that we have seen in managing this land are far outweigh the negatives Mm -hmm. and that just doesn't come through even amongst people i know who pack in for elk all over the west I was like, where are they? Where are you going to do this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clear. You know, in North Carolina or East Coast, you know, Alabama, pub, they're just they're in public. I mean, there's, there's not a little a, there's bit, not that much. But, but they, we had, and I've written about this a lot. But we had like an encyclopedic mental map of every scrap of land we were allowed to go shoot on. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> or hunt squirrels, or um, and and like as soon as I was old enough and realized that looking glass in the Pisgah National Forest, and and I was just thinking about that yeah, place when you said Linwood that. Gorge, mm-hmm. uh, Linville Gorge. Yep. I was like, we were like. Whoosh, off like a shot oh yeah well that's you know i went to undergrad and grad in winston-salem north carolina and every weekend i'd be in my truck going up to pisgah yeah and you know what's it two two and a half hours something like that yeah to just to to get to some land where i could be you know go go full speed you can go full speed you're gonna like and i remember it was we had the bankhead the talladega um we were exploring which i hope to go back and do the conecuh national forest in south alabama mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible they're doing longleaf pine restoration there that's a cool uh tree that i've just yeah. learned now learned i just got yeah, a book you, about y'all it. had north carolina was carpeted oh, with yeah, it at definitely. one point but that the the i credit that looking glass that pisca too mm-hmm. with my opening my eyes yeah it's beautiful yeah where are you gonna camp i don't know let's go find a place yeah Imagine that. <laughs> That's what I say. You know, if I ever left, if I ever leave the West, that area right there is where I'll go. Yep. And that's about it. That's the only thing yep. that could lure me out of here yep. or, or only thing that could even come close to substituting. It wouldn't be a substitute, but it's no, its own place. But the Eastern public lands are, are pretty incredible. Yeah. I definitely. was in the George Washington over Christmas last year with my where my sister lives in Virginia. Okay. Um, what my, part? Where in Virginia? It's like uh, almost to West Virginia. It's out of Stanton. Okay, yeah, yeah. they live way out in the that. country. It's yeah. really the, like the talk about Civil War her, uh, heritage and history. Oh my lord! And it's it's dark, Definitely. but it's it's incredible. Um, but that forest, my nephew who's thirty, he he showed me some stuff in there. We went grouse hunting, and there weren't many grouse. 
it wasn't like a big attack of game. Yeah, yeah but yeah. he gets big whitetails through there. Um, but they just showed me the country. It's cool. And it's beautiful. And when you, it's it's beautiful country. And then when you layer in the the deep history, it's a whole nother. Yeah. Level. And the and the um the kind of shocking level of biodiversity oh, that yeah. you get as you move south. Well, yeah. Well, like yeah. the Smokies. I mean, Smokies yeah. is a temperate rainforest. Yeah. And people don't realize that, but I mean, it, yeah. it's it's amazing. Yeah, you um, can feel it when you're deep in there. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I need to get back there. It's a funny thing about taking a vacation in North Carolina, but whenever I go back, it's <laughs> right. seeing family. I need right. to get in those mountains. Yeah. You know? um, speaking of mountains, mountaineering, I want to hear about that because I'm always hearing about your hunting and fishing. And yeah, how did you get in? What was your first big big climbing trip? That you well, we on? we used to, and when we were in Tuscaloosa, we used to climb uh, at Steele, Alabama. Okay. And which is incredible, what they call bullet sandstone. All right. Um, and then we went to Looking Glass, and we were reading like the Chenard catalog, yeah, and um, just like all of this stuff. And and I remember somebody had a hummingbird. It's like a little short ice axe, and I could not really imagine the application of this tool, but I knew it was cool, you know. <laughs> uh, and so when I got west, um, climbing took me over for a long time and it was it started with rock climbing um through montana mostly really and then we did some stuff in my i mean i had gone to ecuador and attempted to climb chimborazo mm-hmm. uh stuff but i didn't i really didn't know what i was doing sure and i'd run into people in montana who who had hey go oh, yeah we we took a run up chimborazo while we were there you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, my partner and i got our asses totally kicked on the stanley glacier once in canada and uh, as we were coming down, these guys like started late, uh-huh. and they just like they just raced it, just cruised it. They just it. cruised it, and so it's it's like um, any other art form or sport where the the better you get, the more doors open. Yes, like art. Yeah, definitely. Right? Definitely. You know? And so, wh- thinking about some of the memorable climbs you've had in the West, what what do any come to mind? Well, the most I spent a lot of time. Um, uh, obsessed with um, the El Capitan area of the Bitterroots. Oh, really? And at one point, I think I'd done all four points on that mountain and then nice. was starting to repeat them. Really? Uh, and there's some are sn- hard snow climbing and stuff like that. Um, we did, uh, there's been a lot in, in the North the, the North Trapper area there, too. Uh-huh. It's an enormous like, uh, mountaineering rock climb. Yep. But El Cap was, doing, was, was uh, like snow and ice and um, those are those are where I kind of honed everything. We would go to Canada and climb ice in the winter. Nice. And then we would look for ice everywhere. That was a big thing was to find hidden ice climbs, you know. Sure, sure. Um, and then you just get better and better at that. And the first the learning curve in that is you're so uncomfortable. That's the thing. It's just, it's just inoculating yourself to how to discomfort. Uncomfortable it right. Is, you know, and just right. getting used to it. Yeah. I've been sure. on I've been on some climbing trips and like trying to repeat the you know the same mountain like didn't do yep. it once go back the second yep. and the second time it's always seems easier just because you've already gotten your ass kicked you yep. know how cold it's going to yep. be exactly and it just doesn't hurt as bad the second it doesn't time. right and maybe you go a little lighter because you know what you're bringing yeah, you, you may not need yeah. all that junk right did you did you climb before you came west. I'd done, um, you know, I'd spent the, my youth doing a little bit of stuff. But then in college, I did a semester at Knowles. Cool. And I was like, this is the— Where did y'all go? Pacific Northwest. Holy smokes. And so we were in—we were on Glacier Peak for a while. We kind of did it all. And, and so we were did mountaineering on Glacier Peak, rock climbing at Smith Rock, 
hiking and everything on the Olympic Peninsula, wow. sailing in British Columbia. And I got college credit for this thing. Yeah. I was like, what a scam. Yeah. Is that a 40-day trip? 75. Holy smokes. Yeah. And some of the – I've kept up with some of my instructors. One of my instructors is one of the first podcast guests. A guy named Brady Robinson, mm-hmm. and who was Jimmy Chin's climbing partner for a long time. But um, that is what flipped the switch. Gotcha. And without that, I don't know that I would have moved out here. And I've done some – I get really zoned in on things, yeah. You know, on a on a goal, yeah. And then I'll do it, and then I'm done with it. Right. But I've done a few few trips. You're, you're a mountain runner, right? Uh, yeah, I used to be until this uh, one year old showed up. Well, I'm, that's a that's this a, summer. I'm getting back into sure, it. Sure, but that's a great natural progression. It is. Yeah. I think it really is. I mean, I think that was again, for me. That su- that suffer fest. So, so you you do some mountain running? No, not at all. Um, but like like the doing like not and I don't call them extreme sports because I never tried to be extreme about them. My whole deal it. with was was to was to make it safe as possible. Exactly. Like, like you definitely um, you're not trying to do. I'm not a dirt biker. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, it's so alien to me. My for my friends who dirt bike, where you're just in this and they're extremely difficult oh, physically, yeah. but. I just don't get it. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I was a. I don't want to get hurt. No, I was some kind of an other kind of junkie. Yeah, you know, <laughs> suffer ju- suffer yeah, junkie. Suffer junkie. That's what but, I am. Yeah, and uh, but that that progression from that into having children though, mm-hmm. it's wonderful because one thing you're fit, and so you can like run around with them. It makes a huge and two difference. you you kind of have a you're kind of a role. You they my kids got it. They they like to be fit and they're strong and. You read my mind. That was what I was going to ask you next. Is talking about having kids. Yeah. And how did that change things for you? I mean, well, I had them a little bit late in my thirties. Um, how old were you when they started? I think I was thirty six. Okay, we're about the same age. Yeah. I think I was thirty seven when yeah. you showed up. Yeah. And um, I had two, and I had a son, and then a daughter. Um, and it changes everything because, but but it but it was the it was the right when I was moving into writing full time, and just doing the woods work like two months a year. Uh huh. And um. I don't know. I was just ready for that. I, yeah. I totally sympathize with people in their twenties or thirties who, who try to balance child, children, and and their careers and all stuff, and it's very difficult. Yes. I understand that completely. Yeah. Um, but my wife also was very good at running the house. That's huge. I mean, and I used to always and we wanted them. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the thing, and I think when you have that, or at least for me, having that gap between, you know between early marriage or whatever and then having them i think that i mean for us that was necessary for for us it was too i don't know if it was necessary it, yeah. it worked out good. It, it worked out well yeah exactly i i still um imagine we were talking about this on the phone a little bit of being 25 and having a son though and and then being 30 and saying hey man let's go Mm-hmm. And then you're you're like forty and they're in high school, right? Yeah. And ready to ready to really kick some ass. That's how my sister is. She started having them, you know, relatively. She got married soon after college and had them maybe three or four years later. And she's got a teenager now. Yeah, that's my little sister. I'm like, right. what's going on? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and there, I think I think there's beauty in both paths. Um, I, I bet you the other one requires more self-discipline. Yes. I think so. <laughs> At a time when you don't naturally have, have not developed it yet. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the thing is I always say, I don't think I was old enough. I, I wasn't grown up enough to have kids when I was 25, but I, I would have grown up. Yeah. You would have been, you would have done it. Yeah. Some people don't though. And yeah, they blow I've it. seen that. Yeah. I've and seen it. You only it get one chance. Yep. So did having kids kind of get you even more laser focused on the importance of these public lands and kind of thinking about the future of the country for them people ask me that and at the time no um uh it it, but later 
especially my son was working for the Forest Service on wilderness trails and all stuff. Later, I realized there's just only one. There's only one way, mm-hmm. and you don't get to keep what you're not willing to fight for. And Ryan Bussey at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers told me one time, and he goes, well, okay, so let's say you don't get to keep what you're not willing to vote for. And I was like, I'll accept that for sure. now. For now. For <laughs> yeah. now. We'll see where this goes. Yeah. Um, so Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, your podcast on there, it's amazing. I mean, it's one of my favorites. I appreciate that. And how, how did that come about? Because I think there's <laughs> – when I look at my podcast, like on iTunes, it has a yeah. list of – other ones that they suggest, yep. And yours is always like first to the list. Yep. So there's a lot of overlap that's where there. when when I when I you called me, I recognized that when you told me what it was yeah, yeah. from that same thing yeah. on iTunes. Um, it didn't. It was it was as about as organic as a thing could ever be. Uh, we were in down my Lincoln, Montana, in uh, Alice Creek, I think it was a backcountry hunters and anglers camp out. Mm-hmm. And I came down there to see Greg Munther, who's one of the founding members, and to, we had a great. It was a really cool time. It was cold outside, but it was a, it was a great time. We were standing around the fire talking, and Grant Alban, Jill Alban, Grant Alban's wife, who has been a, a backcountry runner, does all this stuff, and she said, "You know, I would love it if somebody could record these conversations." And um, I think Jill was the the genesis of this thing, and it would have been about a year later where somebody said, "Would you be interested in doing this?" And I was like, "Well, I'm interested in it for sure because I'd get to meet all these people I want to meet." Yeah. Um, but I didn't know anything about the technology. I didn't know anything about any of it. I don't. I'm, I'm really hoping this thing's recording right now. So yeah, I feel that's like- how I feel every time, <laughs> right? And uh, and I'm not a luddite. Um, but uh, I'm, my attention span for technology and learning is really short. My attention span for most stuff is short. Sure. So thinking about everybody you've talked to, I mean, you've talked. You, the thing I love about your podcast is you talk to people that are extremely well known. You know, Chenard, Renella, and then you talk to people that are on the ground doing the work, and it's all e- equally interesting. And you learn so much. What thinking about you before you start the podcast and after? Have you changed your mind on anything because of these conversations you've had, or, or have you learned? Probably anything every new? one of them. Really? Yeah, yeah. Probably every one of them. That's great. Um, is there is there one that comes to mind, or, or a issue that comes to mind that you changed your mind on? That's kind I of hard. Think about that. I I did one. It's coming out soon on on with uh, Stephen Pine, who's the probably the Doctor Pine is probably the world's foremost visionary on on fire. Interesting. And he introduced concepts to me, and this is coming out really soon. Um, that I, I, in fact, I recorded the introduction to this podcast yesterday. Okay. And I just said I drove north out of Queen Creek, Arizona, through the Phoenix. It just blows my mind. Like I, I could not deal with Phoenix. I, I got like lost in Phoenix. Five million people yeah. or something. Yeah, I guess it looks like it. Yeah. And or I, two million. Um, but his his understanding of this elemental force fire. Absolutely. There, I, there was one thing after another that I'd never even thought of. It's And, and down in that area, I, I've spent some time down in the Altar Valley, which is south of Tucson. Okay. And they're doing some innovative stuff with fire as well. And you you just wouldn't think when you in a landscape like that that it would make such a difference. Yeah. But it it, ru- mean, it, it kind of rules does. everything. Here's something I was so talking about. So that was, that was one for sure. Yeah. 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 That, well, and that's something I need to learn about. The only problem with doing these podcasts is that it – it ex- opens up how much I don't know. Well, that's I think that's the essence of it. I, I mean, think it's, in that case, it's almost a, um, I'm not saying it's a spiritual discipline, but it's definitely a a, a, a seeking. 
It is. It is. Well, and that's what all these books you were mentioning a while back. You, normally, some of the books are on repeat, and you know they're kind of the standard books, like about water, Cadillac Desert. Yeah. But all the ones you mentioned, not only I've not read them, but a lot of them I never even heard of. So, gotcha. And yeah. Jeff Bezos, thanks you for, uh, yeah. for all the books <laughs> I like to buy. Buy them at your local brick and mortar store, please. <laughs> I know. I wish. I, I wish I could, man. Yeah. I'll just start my own. Um, Interlibrary loan is my friend. I know. Yeah. That is that is the way to go. Um, when I used to live in Boulder. The uh, the book the the library there was like the nicest bookstore you ever been in in your life. Cool. And now I've got a, a a more normal library in Colorado uh-huh. Springs, but I can get them. Um, so thinking about books, what you know, all the books you've read. I mean, obviously you grew up in that family reading all the time. Are there are there a handful that have that you look back on? You're like, all right. That shaped me. I mean, you, you mentioned the the one Matt Matheson, as I said, Peter Matthews. Yeah, yeah. It's, are there any others that come to mind? For sure. But I, I mean, I grew up on a kind of a standard issue playlist there with um, who was riding up Rich, Richard Ford, you know, with Rock Springs. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Richard, I was I was lucky to get under Richard Ford through my sister. It helps to have older sisters. Yeah. For music and books. But um, through it, he wrote a piece of my heart. Which is stated in Mississippi, okay, and it's for one of the, it's not his first book. His first book is very good too. It's set in Mexico, but Richard Ford was a big influence for me. As like you know, imagine being able to write like this and inspire these like deep, uh, strange, uh, visceral emotion mm-hmm. with prose, mm-hmm. and Richard Ford was that for me. Um, Peter Mathieson's Wildlife in America. Um, which is a people have called it the most astoundingly depressing book ever, you know. Um, but but I, I would counter that with we restored fifty percent of the wildlife that he bemoans the loss of, and, and he wrote that in the nineteen fifties when we were just in the process of doing this. Yeah, and um, so yeah, Matthias and stuff. I mean, Jim Harrison, Tom McGuane's ninety two in the shade. I mean, I, I read that. I was an, I've always been an obsessed fisherman. Yes, like like I, like fishing. I can't really not fish, mm-hmm. and to read Night in the Shade was to was to to read a master prose stylist who then ha- shares that same obsession. Have you had him on your podcast? I did. Yeah, How which, was that? I it's the best one. I, I th- it's, it's my personal favorite because he is the funniest, fastest person with the biggest body of work that I've ever. I had the privilege of meeting. I need to go back and listen to that one because I, I listened to the one he did with Stephen Rinella mm-hmm. recently. And I hadn't heard that one yet. Embarrassingly, yeah. I had not read much of his work. Yeah. And again, well, I, I ordered it all up and oh, yeah. through two of his books. Gotcha. Or, or, Which mostly one? Mostly short stories. Yeah. Longest Silence. And actually, somebody sent me um, Some Horses. Do you know oh, Teal yeah. Blake? Because you live you, in his town, I right? Do, I live in his house. Do you really? Yeah. Well, he sent me some horses. I got you. He he sent it He's to the me. illustrator for his father was the illustrator for that. Yeah, and so um, it was like a signed copy. It was so nice of him to do that. Yep. You live in his house. Yeah, he's a good dude, man. I never met him. Really? Yep. I had him on. I just out of nowhere reached out to him. No mutual friends well, his, at, that we knew, and he came on and we hit it. I mean, <laughs> he's a and he's the real deal. Oh, you've interviewed him? Yeah, I've, I've got to go back and listen to that. He, it's a great one, and um, he is he's tough and he's hardcore and he's the real deal. I mean, he's not. He's you know, it, it, there's a lot of parallels between his life and art. And your life in public lands and your writing. He's like a, a ro- he was a rodeo. rodeo. Yeah, his daddy was too. Yeah, and he's, yeah. I mean, he's living it. 
yeah. and, and writing it. I mean, and, wow. and creating as well. So where is he? Good to have, um, he is down in Texas now. Gotcha. Um, in Dallas area, and yeah. he's making a, a real go of it in the art world, and yeah. just a good dude. Well, yeah, I, I live in I live in the house he grew up in. Did you really? Well, yeah. he, he talked about it on our episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, <laughs> what a world, weird huh? deal, huh? That is yeah. crazy. Well, his daddy was Buckeye Blake, mm-hmm. who was a, um, friends with Tom McGuane. And their wives had this pottery business called Way Out West. Uh-huh. And um, that beautiful stuff. Well, he's talked, spoke finally to me about, about Tom McGuane and how he's just basically a member of the family. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, he'd be a good one to have in your family. It'd, yeah. probably, it'd probably be problematic if you wanted to have an argument. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of jumping back. Going back to the, with, with the books, though. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, there really no – I mean, there's just no separation between – one doesn't exist without the other for me. The writing doesn't exist without the books. Um, I just uh, – and and it goes from, from the – I mean, I, I was obsessed with Guy de Maupassant mm-hmm. as a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I, I I have an unrepeatable story that was a response from a friend of mine in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, who told me what he was obsessed with at age fourteen when I brought that up, you know. And I said I said, well, I mean, you know, I, I read all of Guy de Maupassant the summer I was fourteen, and I and I still go back to that. And it's just the short stories. It's like the ultimate short stories from a time. And then de Maupassant to me was like a hero. I I, I love to shoot handguns, you know, and he would practice. He was obsessed with dueling. Mm-hmm. And he would practice. I think he took 50 shots before lunch, after work, really? after he worked in the morning. He went and loaded and, and, and practiced. And then, then the afternoon was spent in, I mean, in dalliances, cool. right? That is really cool. Yeah, I, I recently read um, Stephen King's book called On Writing. Yeah, that's but, great. But there's one section in there when he's talking about, you know, if you want to be a good writer, you got to read and you yeah. got to read a lot. Yep. I was like, well, good, I'm halfway there. I'm halfway there, right, right. And I, and I am too. I mean, I feel that way too. And I still go back. Um, when I was written, started in journalism, I would go down. I'm a, I mean, everybody that I know is a terrible procrastinator, but I'm probably worse than others. I would drive down to Chapter One Books in Hamilton, Montana, mm-hmm. which is a great bookstore. And I would look at, I often didn't buy it. I Later, I subscribed to it at the Wall Street Journal. Yep. And I would read the lead story. And then I would drive back home, and I would try to build my story based on that. This is when From I first started out at High Country News. Uh-huh. I would borrow or steal the structure from that lead story and it would give me time it took like 20 minutes to drive down there yeah. get a cup of coffee look at their wall street journal and i did a lot of business with them too i wasn't i wasn't just a leech sure sure but um i would i would then drive home and figure out how my story fit that structure because you do not reinvent the wheel as a writer or a musician or an artist mm-hmm. if you think you're reinventing the wheel your jackson pollock didn't reinvent the wheel Jackson Pollock, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's yeah. a good point. I mean, you just those who come before you are have have forged a, a multitude of paths. That structure aspect. Um, another one I read is uh, McPhee's draft number four. Have I've read never that? read that. Somebody else who told me that. I've read a lot of McPhee, but of this is basically his manual for how he how he writes. And it reads like an engineering manual. I like bet. he's got charts in it, and, yep. and just the. I think it gave me a real appreciation that you don't just sit down and do this stuff. There's a ton of work, and that was another thing I wanted to bring up with you is, you know, when you talk to you, you're you're so easy to talk to, laid back, fun, but 
I think it's worth noting the the hard damn work you put into preparing. Like on your podcast, I mean, you got here basically a day early so you could sit in the room and prepare for your live podcast you got coming up. But and, and the one, yeah, I've got two days two. for that one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I mean, yeah. can you talk a little bit about about, about that? About just how damn, the preparation aspect and that this it doesn't just happen. I'm ex- no, it doesn't just happen, and um. There's some Ron Mills is an outfitter in my my town, and his podcast he has two that are really popular. He's he's seventy something years old. He's been at it That's since cool. he was born. Um, those didn't require much preparation, and the reason for that is that I've known Ron for fifteen years. I already knew what's what the stories we wanted to hit. But the rest of these things is, um, you know, man, Tom McGuane has one of the best quotes ever. He said, when I sit down to write some, I always assume the reader has a whole lot of other stuff he needs to do. He or she That's needs good. to be doing. That's good. And so, and, and when I sit down with a podcast interview, I'm this person has given you two two and a half hours of, of time that if you know with having a little kid or me having two big old giant ones, like you got stuff, man, it's happening, and and so you can't waste other people's generous generosity. Yeah, and I think if you're, but and that, I think that goes for the person you're talking to, and then goes for the listener, or the reader as well. I mean, you got to. Like I, I prepare for these these conversations, and I put a lot because I know, like, if I'm listening to one of these things and it sucks, it's done. Yeah, you know, if I, I mean, I, I cut it off, and I just don't want to be disrespectful to people. No, that, and that's it. Isn't it? That's respect. It's respect. It that's is. what we're talking about. Um, so back to your writing, and and then I'm going to let you get back to your preparation here. You got a project you're working on. I don't know how much you can talk about it, but can you give us a preview of, of why you're you know you're down here for a podcast, but you're also working on this book project? Yeah. Well, what I'm doing now um, is I'm on a two year deal to write a book on the public lands. Um, I'm I'm pretty intimidated by it. Parts of it have already been done in my, you know, 20 years of writing this. I wrote the first story on on the privatization movement, which is the movement to privatize the American public lands in probably 2000. I think it came out in 2001. And so I've been on this beat for a long time, but now I've got a chance to try to put all this together. And it's, it's, it's really scary. But I'm, I do have a, a, a deal to do this, and I'm, that's what I'm going to be doing for the next two years. I'm going to keep the podcast going. I'm going to keep – I've got a meeting with Field and Stream and some other folks about what I can continue to contribute um, in journalism. Mm-hmm. And, but this is the project now. Focused in. I think yeah. that being does, – does the being scared good for you? Do you like that? I mean, not like it in the moment, I think but does that, it – I think I go with that old cliche, you know, that if you're not doing something that, that scares you a little bit, then you're probably losing ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's I think that's accurate to some extent. It is for um, me. Yeah. I'm getting I, – I can also see why somebody who's older – says to hell with that yeah, i want to go exhausting. fishing man yeah yeah done you know enough of that. yeah done enough of it that and that is there's a storm you know what um god was it ernst junger the german novelist nazi general see again he, these are all books i hadn't read man you're gonna own the marble cliffs <laughs> <laughs> um but uh i think it was younger or or um the guy that when they were doing the uh Heinrich Harr, when okay. he was climbing the Agger, yeah, he said the storm years of one's life should be spent in pursuits like the Agger, mm. and he called that the storm years. I see. And I, I, I get that. <laughs> well, you think about when you like I, I get got so many lessons from all these you know mountaineering trips or whatever, and 
what I found was when I'm in there and I'm getting my ass kicked and it's cold, that's the only stuff I remember. Yeah. I don't remember the nice sunny days. Right. I mean, maybe a, a snippet here and there, sure. but the stories that I'm telling now and that I tell my little girls. Adventure. That's from when I was getting my ass whipped. Right. And so, I mean, there's only so much a person can take or I can take. Sure. But I think the more of these ass-whipping situations you can get yourself in, I mean, you're yeah. making progress. During, your, during the storm years. I think so. Yeah. And, they, and then maybe that I mean, that earns you some time on the couch, you know? Yeah, you can feel good about point. sitting around. Yeah, right. <laughs> or you have to. <laughs> did, um, did, do you ice climb? I have, but I'm not. I, I've never, I've never done a lead climb on ice. Gotcha. Um, it's hard for us Southerners to to come to the West and and adapt to the cold quick enough. That it took me a long time to figure all that cold stuff out. It took me. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. I can get used to it after a while, but holy cow, yeah, that cold. Yeah, I've done some stuff up in Alaska, and I mean, just I'm I'm surprised I hadn't lost a toe. Really. Mm-hmm. I mean, over over time, mm-hmm. probably. I guess I still got time. You got time, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so I got a few quick questions. I ask people towards the end. We've already covered. I, I usually ask a lot about favorite books. We covered a lot of that. Are there any films or documentaries that you've watched? I don't even know if you have time to watch TV or movies, but anything that sticks out that is uh, has been informative to you. I watch a lot of documentaries, um, um, and I I'm trying to think of like. When I think of movies, I think of like VHS tapes in my our youth, oh, yeah. you know. And, oh, yeah. uh, and I think of like, have you ever seen Seven Beauties? No, that Italian movie about World War Two. No, I haven't. Man, it's, you're um, killing me. I, you're, you're stumping me on all. Yeah, of them. that one is um, I, the 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 narration in that movie. Watch that on when you get home on okay. YouTube. Yeah, the, the Seven opening. Beauties. Um, and there's that's an anarchist kind of movie from Italy. Um. I've been I just I've been obsessed with all that stuff for so long. I mean, we 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 reenacted Apocalypse Now, you know, as a kid, but as a grown person, um, I love that movie, The Boyhood. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, I yeah. like all Linklater's stuff. Those are real good. None and, of those have been mentioned. Yeah, so I'll have links. Um, and thinking about, you don't have to give me a specific spot to ruin it, but when you think about your favorite spots in the West. And it's hard. I don't know how to answer this question. But is there one we, spot that comes up that's your favorite? Well, I, um, I was going to say earlier, I, we there was a point where I would go to the Tetons, and for some reason I got I got in. I, I was able to take this time and go to the Tetons and climb there. Yeah. And um, it always holds this. There's this place in my soul, whatever, that is is very ally. It was formed at that time. Like I felt like I was doing what I wanted to do, like where, where I, you know, and then, um, there was a time, the bitter roots, all of it, because I was still pretty young when I got into that. Mm -hmm. And so I know the bitter roots better than I know any other place, even the place where I live now, where I've been for a long, long time. Right. Well, I was too busy and I had the kids and I had the writing and, and, um, it's, I've been, I've been lucky to, to get in there, but the bitter roots I learned as a young person. That place is spectacular. It was spectacular. And I remember packing out, I was hunting with some locals and they had horses for elk, mm-hmm. but they, they, I didn't know that you didn't shoot deer when you're way out in the middle of nowhere because nobody wants to go pack a deer, you know? Yeah. So they just never showed up. They heard me, and he goes, hey, I, the guy said later, he goes, he goes, my dad turned to me, and he goes, do you think that crazy bastard would shoot a deer down in there? And, of course, I did, you know. <laughs> and um, I, so nobody showed up. There was no horses. So I packed this deer out all in one pool. 
Wow. And it, it wasn't as near as dramatic as like things that have happened since, but it was early. Uh-huh. And um, I had like quarters hanging all over me with climbing webbing, and I had, and it was, I mean, I, I really was pretty green. Mm-hmm. And I came walking out of this gully, and I thought, you know, I've been waiting all my life to do this right here. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And I and and I don't know whether I don't know whether that's a like universal human like thing that happens to people, but I I, I do know that at that moment I stood there and I recognized it. I had a similar deal when I moved. I, I got a job, moved to Jackson Hole, and that was when I finally made it out here. And it used to be in North Carolina. I'd read Outside Magazine and yep. I'd get real hyped up and kind of anxious, like kind of angry like man i need and i remember i got my subscription changed my new address and i was sitting there in jackson hole and i was reading it and there was an article about fishing on flat creek and i remember i read it and i was like flat creek's like five miles that way and it was just this calm it's like all right i'm i'm where i'm supposed to be yeah and it was really uh interesting yes i I had the same experience It's, it's amazing that you say it because we passed outside magazines around in tuscaloosa alabama like little religious tracks same yeah and my buddy down there he's in north florida now but he has original mariah which oh really was before outside wow and um he's you know i mean he's he's kept the faith now people yeah people who's who grew up out here they don't get that but i mean i, I went back to my parents house a few months ago and there's this stack of outside magazines that i yep. have and i just study them yeah have you read uh terry mcmillan's book the accidental life no Okay, so he's it's like the life of he he was a novelist for he wrote one fantastic novel in the '60s. He's written this book about being an editor, mm-hmm. and um, he he edited Outdoor Light Outside. Okay, when Tom McGuane sent in, he requested Tom McGuane for a, a, something on hunting. Then Tom McGuane sends him um, uh, uh, out of the outside chance. God, we got we have to know what the essay is. Look it up. Yeah, that's the, the heart of the game. Oh yeah, 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 definitely, yeah, yeah. And that, and he said he never he he couldn't change a word. That, <laughs> a and, professional editor, he's yeah, like, it's done. Yeah, and I so, wonder if he's ever done that since. I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, he th- that book is great. Oh yeah, I've, yeah. I, people have told me I need. Yeah, the first two thirds of that book, and then it gets into the digital age, you know, which and I, I'm lost because I, I kind of got uh, hijacked or or sideswiped by the digital age too mm-hmm. as a journalist. I made it work. Yeah, but um. It was it was a golden age that uh, I've talked to a lot of people that are older about this and they 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 resent missing that. Mm-hmm. As great magazine writers and real professionals, yes, they they resent missing that golden age. Yeah, it definitely was a golden age. Yeah. Um, so, last question: Knowing everything you know, all your experiences, you know, you're you're such an advocate and an important voice for public lands and and just you know the West in general. Um, all the people listen to my podcast, they just, they love the West. A lot of them don't live here, mm-hmm. but they love it and they connect with it either through hunting, fishing, running in the mountains, art, writing. So the, all these people that love the West, if you could ask them to do something or make a request to them or offer some words of wisdom, some way they could kind of chip in this important, does anything come to mind? I, I had an uh, email the other day from a guy in Georgia who said, I'm a second amendment absolutist. Um, I, I I am an environmental, you know, thinker or conservationist. Um, he said, you know, where what are we going to do politically? And I said, I, I said we're going to have to make 
we've got to start from this polarized polemicist chaos that we're in right now. And like I said, it's it's nothing new. Yeah. And and the and the the exigencies of being an American haven't really changed since 1779, right? It's this is an experiment we're in. And you can make this experiment work or you can just break it. And we'll embrace the mediocrity of a, of a of a semi-failed state. There won't be cannibal hordes. Sure. There won't be sure. burn. There won't be much burning or interstates broken. Or it'll be a semi-failed, mediocre state mm-hmm. of of where the water's polluted and the, there's no public lands and your kids don't get to go anywhere other than the city park if you hold on to that. Um, so my thing is, is we need to use the Venn diagram as citizens and say, what is it that we want? And then we're going to have to, we still have a political structure that despite the fact that people are trying to convince us it doesn't work, it does work. The institutions are there and we have to hold candidates, political leadership accountable for the things that we know are important that we all agree on. The methods, the goal, the goals should be agreed upon. Clean water, public lands, uh, the maintenance of, of some sort of equality of experience in our country. Mm-hmm. You know, I've written about this on public lands. That's what we have. Like, you can be poor as a snake in, in Mississippi and wake up one day and get, get the money for a tank of gas and go to Nevada, and basically you could camp your way out homeless for the next six months sure um i mean that's something that nobody else in the world really has Mm -hmm. and we have to understand what we have how we got it and how to keep it going and we can do that i mean it so much of what i see now is this foolishness (laughs) you know i mean it's just so foolish Mm -hmm. and the truth of it is is that a fool and his assets are soon parted and i'm not telling people don't be a fool that's that's insulting we're not fools don't act like one mm-hmm. right somebody says i don't think we need a clean water act by the feds <laughs> and they go where's your state clean water act how's that working out for you in louisiana today just ask the questions um we don't need a federal government ain't got no right to own land and they go well okay I don't think that's true constitutionally, but if you believe that, let's go to Colorado and go hiking. Let's go to Wyoming and go elk hunting and antelope hunting. Let's take your kids down to the river in Montana and go swimming on a hot day. Now you tell me that you don't think that this is something worth fighting for. I think that's great. That's a great way to end it. And I, I seriously, I appreciate all that you're doing. I mean, it's, you know that it, it, the word's getting out, but, I mean, it's hard to really understand the, the ripple effects of everything you're doing. I mean, it's influenced me. So gotcha. I really uh, I really appreciate it. It's great to hang out. Right on, man. Thanks for coming. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, 
if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.